It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I echo those, those thanks for the weekend. It was a wonderful uh, time for the men who were able to come out to get away and to uh, rest together, to think and uh, grow together and to fellowship. Um, join me, if you haven't already, in opening your Bibles to John chapter 21. Uh, this morning, we come into the last chapter of this gospel. And as I think about it, just as soon as I've asked you to open to John 21, I'm going to have you turn to a couple of other places before we <laughs> read here this morning. But that's because I'd like us to start by noticing something uh, about the, the purpose of the gospel accounts that are given to us in Scripture. Um, you can tell by the way that they end that their goal is not simply to tell us about Jesus' life and earthly ministry. Uh, the Gospels generally end in a way that tells their readers much about the plans that Jesus has and is working in right now, after the resurrection and ascension. You can think about it like this. Christ's work atoning for sin was completed at the cross, wasn't it? But was Christ finished working at all after the cross? Not at all. We distinguish between the, the accomplishing of redemption and the application of redemption. He is no longer working to accomplish redemption. He is working still to apply it. Notice some other gospel accounts and the ways that they end before we come into our text this morning. Uh, we're going to leave Mark alone here. Uh, Mark has an abrupt end to his gospel. It's a matter of much conversation and discussion. It doesn't fit the pattern that we're seeing here. But notice with me just quickly how Matthew ends and how Luke ends. Start with Matthew. Look over at Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. This is our Lord proclaiming his authority and commissioning the eleven to go forth and to grow the church to the ends of the earth, making disciples, it says, of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. That is where Matthew's gospel ends. It doesn't end with the cross and the resurrection, that's where it ends. Look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24. Luke 24, starting at verse 45. There we read this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. 
and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I think of what is contained there in what we just read. Luke ends with Jesus revealing to these disciples how he has just fulfilled the entire Old Testament. We have verse 48, his declaring them to be witnesses of these things. We've seen that even recently in our study of John. Uh, And then his prediction of the coming promise of his Father upon them. What's going to come to them here shortly on the day of Pentecost. And then verse 50 actually goes forward and describes his ascension. And of course with Luke here, we know this is quite consciously a part one to the part two of the book of Acts, isn't it? Luke, Acts is a unit together. He even continues in that way in Acts 1.1, picking up where he left off. Um, And the book of Acts that he brings together with this then chronicles God's work of spreading and developing the church in fulfillment of these commissions. In other words, what we're seeing here is that the Gospels are not just giving us a record of Jesus' work and earthly ministry. They culminate in his arranging of his work after the ascension. And the way that that is founded upon the testimony and office of the apostles. That's what he ends by making very plain. Now, here's why I want us to notice all of that this morning. Turn back now to John chapter 21. And as you, as you reach this chapter, take a, take a moment and just let your eyes glance through this final chapter, the whole thing. Good. Most people's eyes are down right now. They're not staring at me. Very good. Very good. What you may be seeing there is you may be noticing there are three stories that almost entirely make up this chapter. Let's just glance at what we're, what we're coming to as we come into this chapter. Let's move backwards. So start with the very end of this chapter. Verses 18 to 23, we get a very interesting story. Uh, and we hear a clarification that John feels the need to provide about himself. That there had been a rumor going around already by that point that Jesus had told John that he was going to survive all the way to the second coming. He was going to be alive still when Christ returned. Now just think of what effect that would have on the mission and work and movement of the church in fulfilling the Great Commission. If they believe that Jesus is going to come back in the lifetime of John, well, there's not, there can't be that much to do. <laughs> We've, we have a pretty short amount of time here. Uh, and so John uses his gospel to dispel that rumor. But again, think of what that does in equipping and informing God's people about the mission of the church in this post-ascension age. It's going to help the church realize we cannot sit around and wait for Christ to return as we're hearing his commands he's given us. He never said he'd be coming back that quickly. So you see how that story aids very much in informing God's people about the mission of the church uh, as he's sending us. Going up from that, verses 15 to 17, Jesus charges Peter to shepherd his sheep. It's not hard at all to see how that points to Jesus' plan and informs us about Jesus' plan of gathering sheep to be led in this church context. The third story, which of course is the first story, it's the one set before us this morning, 
goes all the way from verse 1 to verse 14. Seven of the disciples, we'll read in just a moment, decide to go fishing. They're going to fish through the night with no success. But then with guidance from their Lord, they will encounter unbelievable success in their efforts. And along the way, as this transpires, we're going to see some some particulars, some details given to us about how this happens that only further reiterate what Jesus had said to them when they first began to follow him. When he said, follow me, from now on, you will be fishing for men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The point here is that this story is like the other two in this chapter. These all go together. Like those ones, this one also serves the specific purpose of teaching us about Jesus' plans that he is going to work through his people, through the church, after his ascension. It's not just a random miracle that Jesus is working here. But of course, we've already seen that throughout this study of John, haven't we? We've seen that Jesus did not work miracles randomly. Always, everywhere he went, he was teaching and demonstrating and proving through the things that he did. He is the great teacher. So let's read then what we're talking about here. Let's hear verses 1 to 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, or Didymus, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and they were, <clears throat> and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please be seated. We ask together this question this morning. What has God revealed to us here in preserving this account for his people in all times to read? We just had that reminder given to us last week. There were many other things that Jesus did, but these have been written for this purpose. I do like to ask the question in that that way, though. What is he revealed here in preserving this for his people in all times to read? It's so helpful to remember that the Bible, as the single source of revelation and divine truth that every generation of Christians has always looked to, always been led by, it's the same book. What are we? We are the latest generation to come along to receive what's been handed down to us and to be so fed. So what's happening here for us this morning? What have God's people always been able to see and benefit from by this account? And I would have us notice this morning three elements in this scene that are very instructive for us and thought-provoking. The first is this. I would have us notice the display we see here of the blessed diversity among God's people. This is a reality that every church can visually confirm just by looking around and knowing its members. There is always a great diversity among those whom God has chosen and loved, isn't there? And in particular, what I'm talking about are distinctions among us of temperament and personality. I bring it up here because yet again, we see John and Peter set beside each other. And we noticed much the same reality back in chapter 20 when these two men ran together to the empty tomb. You remember that? John was the first to see the empty tomb. Peter runs in where John had stopped. And those, those two reactions set up against each other there that were detectable there in chapter 20 are made quite visible here in this fishing boat. Look again at verses 4 to 8. They've fished through the night, and as dawn is breaking, they have caught nothing. They see a man on the shore, and he tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. Now, there is a sense in which this is not unusual. It's simply true that there are things that can be seen from farther away in a context like that. Uh, There's a man named H.V. Morton, wrote a book back in 1935 uh, in which he recounts personally seeing a fisherman casting a hand net into the Sea of Galilee from a boat who has a friend on the shore. So this man's watching this happen. This guy's out there just like this, casting this net, and his friend on the shore motions to him that he needs to throw it on the other side. And when he does that, he caught fish. Morton wrote this about that experience. He said, it happens very often that the man with the hand net must rely on the advice of someone on shore who tells him to cast either to the left or the right because in the clear water he can often see a shoal of fish invisible to the man in the water. In this case, it it, it works very successfully, doesn't it? And we know that what is happening here is something of a divine arrangement going on. But for the men in that boat, nothing about that immediately lets on that something miraculous might be happening. However, as they make the catch, 
for one of them, something clicks. And what I suspect is that the memory of what took place for these men roughly three years before this, the memory slams into the Apostle John. It was recorded for us in Luke chapter 5 that at the outset of Christ's ministry, nearly this exact same thing took place with some noteworthy differences, and we'll look at that here in just a few minutes, not yet. But that's what I think happened with John. This is going on, and he remembers a time when this happened before. However that happened for him, we find something mentioned here that is small, but I want us to take notice of it. Notice the differences that we find here between John and Peter. Again, displayed like they were outside of the empty tomb. John saw something. He he perceived something before the rest of them did. And Peter acted before the rest of them did. Listen to how J.C. Ryle described this distinction between the two of them. I really appreciated this. He wrote, in a word, John was the first to see, but Peter was the first to act. John's gentle, loving spirit was quickest to discern, but Peter's fiery, impulsive nature was quickest to stir and to move. And yet both were believers, both were true-hearted disciples, both loved the Lord in life and were faithful to him unto death, but their natural temperaments were not the same. Ryle goes on in applying this. He says, let us never forget the practical lesson before us. As long as we live, let us diligently use it in forming our estimate of believers. Let us not condemn others as graceless and unconverted because they do not see the path of duty from our standpoint or feel things exactly as we feel them. The gifts of God's children are not bestowed in precisely the same measure and degree. Some have more of one gift, some have more of another. Some have gifts which shine more in public, and others have gifts which shine more in private. Some are more bright in a passive life, and some are more bright in an active one. Yet each and all the members of God's family, in their own way and in their own season, bring glory to God. And he points us to another example, Mary and Martha, the sisters. Mary was careful and troubled about much serving when, excuse me, Martha was careful and troubled about much serving when Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. And do you remember which of them was commended there in that? Martha was corrected, Mary was commended. Yet there came a day at Bethany when Mary was crushed and prostrated by much sorrow and Martha's faith shone more brightly than her sister's. Both were loved by our Lord. I bring our attention to this first, in part because it's early in the text, but also because it is the least directly relevant to what John is presenting to us here. But I am convinced that it's a sight that we need to notice any time that it is shown to us. Because it is easy for us to fail to appreciate what God is doing in creating and gifting and burdening us differently from one another, and yet putting us together to love and to serve. 
Now, that's the first insight here that we can see. The second and third sites that we find here are integral, not only to what Jesus is teaching the disciples by doing this, but also to what John intends to convey to us by recording it. The second site that we see here is a foreshadowing that is taking place right there on that shoreline. Something is being foreshadowed here in these events. I've mentioned already, there's something that happens here that is very similar to what began their time with him three years prior. But there are differences between these two events, really significant differences. Let's notice those. Would you go back with me at this point to Luke chapter 5? And what I'd like to do is I'd like to read Luke 5 verses 1 to 11. Just let us hear the account. And I want us to be thinking about what is the same in this event and what's different here. Luke 5, starting at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, Excuse me. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And stop there. What is the same here and what's different? Well, there's a lot of things that are the same. There's the same result of their overnight effort, which is zilch, verse 5. We toiled all night and took nothing. There's the act of obedience, of casting out the net again in response to his command to do so. And there's the large number of fish that are caught here. Those make these two accounts very similar to each other. But what's different? Well, at this moment in Luke 5, the fruitfulness that he is giving to them and giving to their work is something that they cannot handle, that cannot be handled. Their nets are breaking. Fish are escaping. And as they get another boat involved, instead of fixing the problem. You now have two boats sinking and fish are escaping. You remember how the events of the morning of our passage are different than that. Come back to John 21. What happens to this miraculously large catch now? Verse 8, they drag the full net to the shore. In fact, verse 11, Peter, either by himself 
or likely uh, together with the other disciples but leading them, they successfully drag this net ashore. And John makes special note of the fact, doesn't he, that although there were so many, the net was not torn. How many fish in this net? Large fish, 153. Many attempts have been made to try to find spiritual significance and symbolism in that number, 153. I won't go into those. I think it's a very unnecessary thing to try to seek out. It is true that in a number of cases, they, they did use numbers symbolically uh, as, 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 uh, as a practice. That doesn't mean that they were incapable of using a number in a non-symbolic way just to tell us some information. And I think that's what's happening here. These fishermen are doing what fishermen do. They are excited about this catch, and they're going to count so they can tell people how many were caught here. But although the number is likely not symbolic, I do very much think that the event itself is intended to symbolize a reality behind it. At the time uh, of their beginning with Jesus, they were fishermen. And when they witnessed Jesus' power and heard his call to follow them, they were told they, they immediately left everything and followed him. Uh, and they followed him to become what Mark 1.17 calls fishers of men. From the beginning, Jesus is using their prior occupation of fishermen to picture exactly what he is preparing them to do in God's kingdom. We heard it there in Luke 5 as well, right? From now on, you will be fishing for, you will be catching men. And now, at the end of this account, again, these men are fishing. Only now, they are apostles of Jesus Christ, commissioned less than 20 verses ago. We've seen that recently. And again, Jesus meets them at the water. And again, he displays his power through a fishing event. But not only have we seen that this, is, this has differences to the event of Luke 5, we should also notice that both of those events are different from his duplicating the fish and loaves in the baskets. Do you remember when he miraculously produced the food and provided? This is a completely different context than that. This is in the context of them becoming fishers of men. These things are happening in the interim period between his resurrection and his ascension when he is teaching them about what we read described in Acts 1.8 as their role now to be his witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. And what picture does he give as he's preparing them and calling them to this? Not only do they, mind you, at following his command, his guidance, not only do they catch an insane amount of fish, but this time, their efforts fail in no way. Their, their nets do not break. They do bring all the fish to shore, every one of them, that he has given them to catch. And it seems to me unavoidably clear that this is perfectly picturing what Christ has been telling them he was going to do through their ministry, through his ongoing work on this earth, by means of his body. He's told us that as the gospel goes forth throughout the earth, all of those, not some, but all of those whom Christ has come to save, 
are going to find rescue. We heard him say in John 6, beginning at verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. As he's preparing to leave them in death, and he's praying for them and for us, he says in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And in describing it like that, he is making plain the purpose and plan of God, that salvation will come as the testimony and foundation laid by these apostles goes out throughout the earth. And through this, the gospel goes out and saves. It's exactly what this event pictures as it happens to not just anyone, but it happens to his disciples turned apostolic foundation layers of the church of Jesus Christ. That's who this happens to. It's in that capacity that the nets are never going to break. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You hear all of the ways in which Christ not only describes his coming salvation, but describes the mechanisms, the means by which this is going to happen on earth. In the early 20th century, a man named R.H. Strand wrote something helpful about this unbroken net in this event. He said, this would signify that the church's resources, with Christ in its midst, are never overstrained. Similarly, Leon Morris compares the broken nets of Luke 5 the unbroken nets here. And he says, this may point to something added after the resurrection. It was in the power of the risen Lord that the net did not break. You see what this picture in this event, in this context, gives to us this morning? Oh. And what it has always given to his people. Oh. What, has, what has all of the church throughout church history been provided in what we see here? It is this. It is peace and confidence as we represent Christ in this world, as we share Christ in the world. What do you think? Will these apostles know rejection and opposition in their lives after this? Certainly they will, likely a great deal more than you and I will ever experience. And yet, Within perhaps two months of this date, they will have seen 3,000 people, 3,000 individuals, repent of sin, be baptized in Jesus' name, and be added to the church in a single day. And by the end of the, the book of Acts, the gospel will have spanned across Turkey and Greece and Rome. And within a few hundred years, the emperor himself will confess the name of Christ, at least confess it. And the entire history of Western civilization then becomes the story of the movement of the gospel across much of this world. My goodness. These nets are not breaking. It's not hard to see how this is happening. 
Now, there is certainly debate. Some of you know this well. <laughs> Christians can and very much do differ in how they expect things to look going forward as this takes place. This is the, this is the reason that there are different what we call millennial positions, positions on what we think the Bible is teaching about, about a, uh, a millennium. Uh, and there are differences there that Orthodox Christians hold. But what they all have in common is the certainty that Christ will prevail over all. And at the end of that prevailing, what percentage of the people throughout history that God has, has come to save will call upon his name? 100%. We all agree that for all of the rest of history, however long that is going to be, the proclamation of his victory and of his offer of peace through the cross will be the instrument of that rescue, which is to say that it's the work of these apostles that, will, that is destined to come to full fruition by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. These apostles as the foundation of the church. And how is that pictured? How's all that pictured here? By 153 fish being caught up in a single net, and that net remaining steadfastly unbroken as the full catch is brought all the way to shore. And we need to move to the third picture now, but I can't, I can't help inserting one final thought about this experience with the fish. It's not related to what we've just said, but it has, it has struck me this week, and I wanted to share it with you as well. It's, it's the realization that, that Jesus used Luke chapter 5, that fishing event, to provide a contrast in these men's minds and in our minds. He used that event to provide a linking realization about who he was and how he works and what he was doing three years later. And the thought that it, that it provokes in me is, hmm, what event is God bringing my way today? What event is he bringing to us today with the purpose of contrasting it, reminding us of it, using it to prove himself to us three years from now? Ten years from now? It's just something that we should keep in mind as we're living through our day today. Lest we be Excuse me, lest we be too quick to grumble at something that God is bringing us simply because we cannot immediately understand what purpose may lie in it. We will know. And all of them will contain blessed purpose. The third and final event that we get to see here is we could say... Uh, we get, a, we get a display of the extent to which the resurrected Lord shows himself to be with us. He has promised to be with us, hasn't he? We read it when we read the end of Matthew's 
gospel. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. But that is not a bear kind of with us in principle. We've said it to each other at points. Someone's going and doing something hard or important and we'll say, I'm with you in spirit. You know, uh, There's something meaningful there. But of course, in that situation, if you're then in need over there, I'm not really of any use to you, am I? Except insofar as I'm praying for you. What do we see here of Jesus? He has accomplished the mission he came to earth to accomplish. And he doesn't simply then depart, leave some instructions and impart. He is with them here. They experience his presence. And what's more, they they experience a kind of presence. They experience true love and fellowship with him. Personal presence, loving presence. In verse 5, he calls out to them, with a very uh, affectionate term. The word is paideia, uh, children. Uh, many suggest that they used that term then like we do. Uh, hey, boys, or lads, this sort of thing. They suggest translations like that. Cheerful, familiar. In verse 9, they reach the shore, and he's got a fire ready with some food. He has them bring some more, and they have breakfast with him. You can hear it in in their description in verse 12. They are nervous and uncertain. And Jesus takes bread and fish and gives it to them. This is all that John tells us. But again, what is the picture he's painting here for us? This is a scene of restored fellowship with their Lord. For a little while they did not see him, but then they saw him again. We heard Jesus tell them back in chapter 16, verse 22, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take. No one will take your joy from you. My friends, do you remember that just before that event, in the middle of chapter 14, Jesus had explained how that deep fellowship That close relationship was going to exist and was going to exist in perpetuity. He he did it by describing our connection with the triune God. Such is the union that exists among the persons of the Trinity, that as the Holy Spirit is given to them, Christ himself and the Father also will dwell with his people. This is how he described it. I will come, we will come and make our abode with you. We will dwell with our people. You remember this morning that since the day the Lord called you to himself, he has been near you. He has been with you, working in you, working through you. To you belongs his promise, never to leave or forsake. It is the reality behind so much of the relational dynamic of the Christian walk that we read about in Scripture. This is something we talked about at several points this weekend in the men's retreat. James 4, 8 can urge us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. These are the terms that it's described to us in. Relational terms. Child to father terms. My friend, has it been 
long since you have thought of your relationship to your Savior in those close relational terms. The one who purchased you with his own blood is the one who, the more you know him, the more you want to please him, the more his pleasure matters to you and is what drives you, the more that his esteem, his smile becomes the thing that you pursue, the more and more that you have in mind his pleasure as your choices are being made, as your sacrifices are being decided, as your priorities are being set. As we begin closing, can I suggest to you that it's often that very relational aspect of our faith that the cares of this world strip away from us. Maybe that well describes a moment that you're in right now, a season that you're in. Is this a morning when God is bringing you this picture in his word to lead you back to a more active trust but not a bare trust, the trust that is couched in, situated in, the active awareness, the fellowship that you share with him through the person of his son. These are the sights that we see in a very simple, beautiful picture painted for us here on this shore of this body of water as the disciples encounter the resurrected Lord for now the third time, according to verse 14. It's a little sight of the diversity of temperament and gifting in the body. And it's two great big sights of God's great plans for his church to grow unconquerable as all of God's children are brought into the fold and to live every step along the way with the loving presence of our Lord caring for us and guiding us. My friends, may we be diligent to read every headline in public life and to walk through every season of private life with that promise in mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we look to you in all of these things. You are the one who so diligently, so faithfully reminds us of these truths time and time again, right when we need them. You are the one who is gentle and patient and long-suffering, who knows our frame, and yet who is unflinchingly dedicated to the image of your Son being born out and created in us. God, we thank you for your relentlessness and for your gentle patience with us. And we ask you, Lord, that as we come, as you bring us like this to worship you and to bow before your word, we ask that you would attend your word in our lives with power, that we would remember what we see, and that we would be changed by what we see. All of this is the work of your spirit. We thank you for it, and we pray for it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.